House of Mystery presents Inside Writing, the radio show where authors discuss their writing process in all genres. And uh, today, of course, it's me, Al Warren, and I've got Michael Hawley as well. Uh, Hello again. The uh, Ripper. The Ripper guy. <laughs> he's the Ripper, and 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 I don't mean Jack. I mean he just you can't sit in a studio with him for very long. <laughs> well, I got to keep my distance from him, but that's my way of social distancing. I guess. Well, you need a lot more than six feet, that's for sure. Um, well, today, so we're doing a lot of Ripper now because that's the thing to do. Um, seems to be a lot of interest, and so I've been going through the list and trying to find people that are. Uh, writing or being involved in the in in the Ripper history and different parts of it, so we've got a, another guest that does that, um, and his book is uh, Inside Buck's Row. Now, it's Marianne Nichols' An Anatomy of Murder, and from what I understand, it's a uh, part. It's book one of a project, and we'll ask him about that. So on the line. We've got uh, Stephen Blomer. Thank you for being here. Good evening. Nice to be here. So nice speaking with you, Steve. Yeah. Uh, Thanks, Mike. Grab a coffee. No, the um, <laughs> now. Uh, first of all, let's, let's start. How did you get uh, interested in Jack the Ripper and the Whitechapel murders? Oh, we go back many years now. Um, we go back to the 1960s. My late grandfather was born just after the murders and he lived, I lived in the same house as him and he used to tell me as a little boy stories about this mythical Jack the Ripper type character. So I got an early interest. Then in 1973, when I was 13, the um, BBC did their Bardo and Watt docudrama thing and that got me really interested. And then over the years, I, I went in and out of uh, checking on the Ripper and studying the Ripper. My other main interests were Egyptology and politics. Um, then I took early retirement uh, from a life in medical research in 2014, and I'm now a full-time writer, researcher on Jack the Ripper. So now, this this project you've got, okay, Anatomy of Murder, and it's the Whitechapel Murders Project, Book One. Uh, what does that mean? So you're doing a Whitechapel murders project what are you doing what's this whole series about the series is looking at well initially it's looking at the five canonical murder sites and the murders <laughs> that took place there um i'm not actually doing it in chronological in chronological order surprisingly enough the next book is on mitre square um it's just because i'm doing it in the order which interests me um so mitre square will be next then Hanbury Street, then Burner Street, then Dorset Street. Then we have another one, which is all of those who might have been victims. And that will be volume six. Mm. So, so each one is covering a murder. And this first one is Mary Ann Nichols. Nichols. Yeah. Uh, so, what, so you're basically going over it in detail, the actual murder, the murder site and everything. <clears throat> yes. Okay. Well, one of the things I like about this is, uh, and I'm glad that uh, Steve, you're here to uh, to talk about this because when we look at all the 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 ripperology in all aspects, there is a lot of uh, uh, misinformation that gets passed on and then almost almost becomes fact. 
And then so it's it's great to have somebody get into uh, the research and the detail about each specific one. So and in this case, there's a couple things uh, with uh, Polly Nichols uh, that we had the same thing. So it's exciting. Good. So let's start in with this uh, and maybe explain who was Marianne Nichols and um, how did she um, end up uh, being one of the victims? Marianne Nichols was um, a lower middle class at one stage, um, perhaps upper working class is more accurate, um, woman, um, had a real problem with alcohol from an early age, had a marriage that went wrong, uh, the husband left her, um, she then drifted into casual prostitution on and off. It was more to do with the alcohol, the fact she couldn't hold down a job. She did get a job in 1888, but it didn't last long because she absconded from the house uh, in Wandsworth with um, some clothing and other possessions from the family. She ended up drifting to Whitechapel, where she stayed for around three or four weeks, from what we can tell, before she unfortunately one night went out and uh, met the... Whitechapel murderer. And she had five children too, right? Yes. Maybe describe, you know, because the listeners that don't understand, what was um, London like at the time of the murders, and what was this Whitechapel area like? Maybe give us a description. At the time, London was, without doubt, the centre of the world. It was the largest city in the world. It had a massive population compared to other cities in the world. Uh, you had divided into the West End, which was the upper class area, um, places like Chelsea, Knightsbridge, uh, Marble Arch, Buckingham Palace, around that way. Then you had the city itself. The city of London is a very small, peculiar bit. It's a mile square, and it's the centre of the finance industry in Britain. Uh, and then to the to the East of that, bordering on it, touching it, is what's called the East End. This was much more run-down uh, slums, 80,000 people living in a very small area, um, very high immigrant population at the time, which hasn't changed, just different immigrants now in that area. Now it's Bangladeshis. Back in the 1880s, it was mainly Jewish immigrants from the pogroms in Europe. Um, in some streets... The population was 90-95% Jewish. Um, people, there weren't jobs going. People did what they could, when they could. Many women, it appears, turned to what we would call casual prostitution rather than um, work as a prostitute. They did what they had to do to survive, basically. Many people <laughs> were living in DOS houses. That's They rented a bed or a space out at night. Um, if they didn't have the money for that, they were out in the streets. Simple as that. So, so what happened then with Marianne Nichols? If she, um, did she, was she living that way particularly? She was at the end. Um, she spent a lot of her life, I say, she originally got married fairly young. Um, she lived south of the river at that stage in what were the new Peabody estates. These were um, up-and-coming estates meant for... Poorer people, but much better conditions than they'd been used to. They weren't slums. <clears throat> Unfortunately, a relationship with her husband broke down, possibly because he was having an affair with another lady in the area, also possibly because of her drinking as well at the same time. 
Um, she then drifted basically, spent a lot of time in and out of the local workhouses, uh, Lambeth Workhouse and various others, but many months in those in and out. She was then apparently involved um, in some trouble in Trafalgar Square around the time of what was referred to as Bloody Sunday in late 1887, when troops were called out for a demonstration. Um, she was a woman who could take care of herself. As I said earlier, in early 88, she was, the workhouse found employment for her in the Wandsworth area as a housemaid, um, but she absconded with property from the house, uh, almost certainly because of her drinking habit, ended up in the East End, drifted between one or two separate DOS, ha DOS houses. On the night of her death, she had spent her money, which she needed for her bed, several times. Um, she was last seen by another lady who may well have been a casual prostitute as well, we're not sure. Um, at around about 2.30, a body was found just over an hour later. So that uh, that would be Emily Holland was the lady that yes. saw her, and that was two thirty. Yes. And then uh, two thirty, uh, yes. So yeah, I like how you said that two thirty ish. And then uh, we have uh, what about it? Let's see. I'd say three fifteen is when we have one patrol constable walking Buttrow did not see anything. Yes. And then, but then soon after that was when uh, we have two people seeing her body. Uh, could yes, you go we have, a little bit? Yes. Um, PC John Neal was a member of J Division of the Metropolitan Police. Uh, Buck Row was on his beat. He went through at, a, at approximately quarter past um, three in the morning. He saw nothing. Sometime between 3.30 and 3.45, um, two carmen, that's delivery guys, uh, walking from the east to the west, going down Bucks Row, uh, came across the body of Mary Ann Nichols lying outside of a yard. Um, they basically looked at her, were, co were concerned, went off to find another police officer, found one, but in between times, John Neal had come back round and found her body before the other police officer arrived at the scene. Okay, okay. And then I think the, that Dr. Llewellyn uh, was there soon, real fast. They got a hold of him real fast to check out the body. Yes. I mean, if we, if we assume that um, basically the body's found approximately about 3.40, 3.45 by the police, um, Llewellyn is there around about 4 o'clock. Um, he only lives approximately five, six minutes away from the scene. So it looks like if the body's found at 3.45, a uh, second police officer is signalled, comes down the road, goes off to get the wedding, comes back um, with the wedding. We're looking at around about any time between 3.55 and 4.05. But the time is not the important thing here because people take these times as being absolutes. Someone says, I saw this at 3.45, I did this at 3.40. They're not absolutes. There was no synchronised time. Everyone's watch, if they had one, was different to everybody else's watch. People may have gone from clocks in the street or on churches, but these wouldn't be synchronised. Basically, my view is that all the times that are given in any Ripper case are just estimates, and you can probably allow for two or three minutes either way as a bare minimum, and possibly up to five minutes either way as a bare minimum. Right, right.
So what's interesting also with this case is, I mean, uh, forensics was not around much. I mean, they just took that body away, didn't they? Yes, it was just picked up, um, placed onto what was termed an ambulance, which was basically just a handcart. Um, street was washed down at the same time with buckets of water. Um, if anyone's seen the Michael Caine film where uh, buckets of water are being thrown on, thrown onto the pavement to, to, to clean it away, that's actually very close to what actually happened. <laughs> there was nothing was recorded. When Llewellyn came there, he took no notice of the scene at all. Um, it was basically, she's dead, onto the car, move it, move it off as soon as possible. Okay. And then, so that box row, now, uh, on the other side of that, uh, the Whitechapel Road, was the, the London Hospital around yes. that area, correct? It's and approximately then, uh, a five-minute walk from Bucks Row. Okay. And then, uh, so so we have this case, and then what to me is really also intriguing about the Polly Nichols murder is because of the two previous uh, unfortunates that were murdered, uh, uh, Smith uh, and also uh, uh, Martha Tabram, yeah. Uh, they, Tabram, they were already assuming that this was a series kind of killing going on, and in a lot of cases, this might be the first one. Yes, the, 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 the press were assuming that immediately. The police, I'm not so convinced, were linking all three together immediately. They were within a day or so, but I don't think at the time itself. I think when they first found the body laying there, I don't think there was any linkage at all at that stage. When right. um, Inspector Spratling arrived at the scene and when Inspector Helson arrived at the scene, uh, I don't think anyone was thinking this is linked to other murders. This was just a run-of-the-mill murder. It wasn't until they got to the mortuary and realised just what had happened to her that um, things took off. Shall we say? So at the so at the mortuary, uh, what did they find? Well, apparently, all they'd seen at the site was that her throat had been cut. Um, Llewellyn had carried out a very perfunctory um, inspection of her at the site and hadn't noticed that um, her intestines were p protruding. Um, many for many people over the years, they've tried to claim that. Um, she had very minor cuts to her. She didn't. She was all but eviscerated. Mm. The killer had been interrupted and just hadn't actually taken her intestines out of the body cavity at all, as he did in other cases such as Chapman and Eddowes. The cuts had all been made. It just hadn't been completed. It was only when they got her to the um, mortuary and started to undress her and, note, and clean her up that they noticed that she'd been basically cut right open. So if, and, and this is where I uh, agree with you too, is that it looked like the offender probably was interrupted. And so the, the, the business, at, we, if she, he, he was not interrupted, we might have seen some organs taken possibly. Yes. Um, in fact, one researcher who's well known, Tom Westcott, has suggested that perhaps organs had been taken. Um, I don't agree with Tom on that, and he's not 100%. It's sort of like he's just suggesting that possibly something had been done, um, and it just wasn't it was missed. Because at the inquest, um, the coroner, Wayne Baxter, asked uh, Llewellyn to go back and check, basically, that nothing was missing, which suggests Llewellyn hadn't actually checked properly in the first place. Right. 
And then, especially since the next one, Annie Chapman, it was completely uh, apparent that uh, the womb yes. was taken. <laughs> yes. So that one had been completed. That one was. That one. It looks. It looks to me basically as if Nichols was within thirty seconds of being in the same situation as Chapman. Mm. So with that case, in that case, then we have uh, the uh, patrol constable not seeing anything, and then soon after we b have both the carmen coming, uh, Charles Lacross or Leachmere, and then a Robert yep. Paul. And yep. did, did they come together, or did they meet there, or how did that work? This is a very interesting point. The Leachmere has become a suspect for several researchers. And there's a, t there's a television documentary which pushes him to a great extent. Um, it's all about timings here, how far he was in front. Lechmere was in front of Paul. It's just a question of how far he was in front. The television documentary tries to argue he was nine minutes in front, which is that conclusion is reached by taking a time which Rob Paul gives of leaving... Uh, arriving in Buckrow exactly uh, 3.45 and taking uh, a timing which um, Lechmere gives of leaving home around 3.30 and turning that into exactly 3.30 and then allowing for the walking right. distance which is about six to seven minutes depending on the exact route Lechmere would have taken you're left with nine minutes they try and argue that if Lechmere had been within sight of uh, Robert Paul Robert Paul must have seen him if they'd been within a short distance but if one actually looks at the distances on a map and checks them, um, Lechmere could have been passing the bottom of Robert Paul Street in Foster Street, um, 45 yards ahead of him, and not been seen until um, he's only 30 or 40 yards away from the, the body, in fact. It all depends on which spe at what speeds they're walking at and exact position they are. But unfortunately, there are researchers who try and push that Lechmere is there much sooner before, when in reality, he's probably only 30 or 40 seconds in front of Robert Paul, at the most. Right, right. i always uh, curious, too, I think in the case of with um, the Scotland Yard or just the detectives, local detectives there, to me, because they didn't have DNA or didn't, didn't have fingerprinting or whatever, one of the things that they would really focus upon are eyewitness accounts, or those that are around. So I think they would have... Uh, looked at uh, Leachmere and Robert Paul quite closely, and it probably, to me, would have discounted them quite uh, in, in that case, too. Well, we do know that Robert, I mean, unfortunately, the police records are non-existent, or whether they were interviewed or not, but we do know from a later report in the Lloyd's Weekly Press that um, Robert Paul was interviewed at some length by, by, the, by the police. He says they came... Mm -hmm. um, <coughs> took him from his home to the police station. He was interviewed at some length. I think it's inconceivable that the same didn't happen to Lechmere. Unfortunately, right. the proponents of Lechmere argue because there's no record that he was interviewed, then we can't say he was interviewed. So you're saying absence of evidence is evidence for absence, which is BS. <laughs> yes, basically, so. yes. That's the gotcha. argument which they use all the time, unfortunately. Gotcha. I see. So... And then the connection with Polly Nichols uh, definitely came, Scott and Yard took him seriously after a week later when Annie Chapman's uh, uh, murder was very similar. Yes, yes, and the fact that um, it's quite possible that uh, Lechmere would have walked past um, Chapman's um, 
the site of Chapman's murder on his way to work. We can't be sure about this. What we do know is that he walked past there with Robert Paul on the morning of Nichols' murder, but that's because he was walking with Robert Paul. He may have taken a different route if he hadn't been walking with Robert Paul. Uh, at that right. stage, I'm sure the police would have really checked at that stage. Right, right, right. I think it's inconceivable that you've got this man who you know has walked that direction, another murder takes place and you don't check him out. I think it's completely right. inconceivable that that happens. Right. So then after uh, this one, you said you're not going to go to, uh, you're going to go to Catherine Edo's uh, murder is the, your yes, next? Yes, uh, might just swear. That's, that's a much larger book, unfortunately. Oh, uh, yeah. It's not going to be out until um, November next year. Um, okay. The Bucks Row book, uh, though it's an e-book, it's the equivalent of 575 pages at, at present. The Mitre Square book, we're looking at over a 1,000. Well, I can see why, because there's so much detail yeah. with that. And there's so little, actually, with Polly Nichols, with even eyewitness accounts, Yes. And uh, but we see more. I have a question: Is why did uh, the format you chose, the ebook, um, where what, what kind of advantages or disadvantages were you just to choose that? Um, main advantage is that um, you can link in outside information much easier. In a traditional book, you look at references and you go to the back. You see, see a footnote. You go to the back, and then you've got to go and try and find it. Um, with an ebook. You click on the reference, it takes you to either to an internal part where the reference is given. I include um, many pages of witness statements in the appendices of Inside Buck's Row. Um, okay. Or it takes you to external sites, it takes you to um, specialist history sites or Wikipedia sites, if it's site which is not too contentious, or it just takes you all, all over the place. We link into... Mm facebook.org jtr forums we link into richard jones's sites uh we link into to many sites quite honestly and it makes it far easier for someone just to check and see what's going on it also there's also another problem which i'm sure a lot of us have found and that's issues of copyright on maps mm -hmm. um when you do it as an ebook and as long as you link directly to the site there's no copyright issue oh, okay. so um i have um, over a hundred sketch maps which I've done myself in the book but for period maps I've got a whole appendices a whole chapter which links to something like 70 or 80 separate offline maps some of the gold maps some are held in the, Brit uh, the British Library some are held at libraries in the United States um, but it's all linked so it gives the reader far fuller picture and it actually it's aimed at researchers to an extent I started off writing mm. this from a research point of view to, as an aid for researchers, and it's grown mm. from that. But it's much easier if you're researching like, to cut and paste than to have to sit down and transcribe. Right. Um, the disadvantages, the major so, disadvantage is that a lot of people don't like ebooks, mm. and a lot of people still want a physical print book. Mm. Now, I am working on converting this across, but it's not a straightforward. Uh, conversion obviously because a lot of what is in the ebook won't work and is irrelevant uh, in a physical book so that's quite a long process of rewriting it right so you're doing two things at once you're trying to do the printed version of this one and then the uh, miter square book you're working on as well it's three things at once i'm also um <laughs> believe yeah. it or not, i'm also starting the research for the hanbury street one as well oh okay 
But as I, then, as I do this full time and have nothing else to actually do, I squeeze things in without too much well, hassle. So, something interesting, which uh, is a lot of um, researchers talk about, uh, is that they try to show temporally we have an increase in the amount of violence, uh, mm. which is not always the case because if, if uh, Polly Nichols was interrupted, then that would have started right at that moment. And then here's... Mm. Uh, and then uh, with uh, um, Mary Jane Kelly, she was indoors, so he had a few hours. Yeah. But yeah. so it's interesting that uh, a lot of people would automatically do it from each, um, you know, each particular murder. So you do uh, the next one with uh, Annie Chapman. So how do you, what do you, uh, what do you think about that particular idea of an increasing amount of uh, violence? I think there is an interesting. I think there is an increase in the amount of violence. The only one where there's not is the Elizabeth Stride one, and that again, I think most people accept that if there is a Ripper uh, murder, and that's not 100% certain, I think. Uh, but right. if it is, then he's interrupted. The killer is interrupted. Uh, right. I'm pretty sure I know who he's interrupted by, and that fits in into other theories I've got about who the killer was, which will come later. <laughs> right. Yes, there so, may yeah. be a suspect at the end of this at volumes eleven. But we're probably looking at about fourteen, fifteen years time for that. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm going to have to find a lot more stuff on my guys so you can use that stuff. <laughs> Good. No problem. What do, you, what do you think the biggest um, misconception about Jack the Ripper is in the general public? Um, that he was well-to-do, that he was possibly a member of the royal family, that there was a massive establishment cover-up. I think that's what you hear all the time. You, I've got friends who are tour guides. Unfortunately, there's no tours at the moment, but you go on their tours and you hear the general public saying this over and over again. He was a tough. He was a royal. You go on Facebook, you see it over and over again. You don't see it so much on the specialist sites like Facebook and Facebook, um, Facebook and JTR forums, but on general public sites, those are the main misconceptions. And and um, what about him uh, being a uh, a doctor or someone that was like uh, medically trained? This is an interesting point. Uh, um, it depends on who you listen to. I mean, the doctors at the time seemed to be equally split. Uh, Phillips definitely believed he had um, medical skills. Bond believed he didn't. Uh, some of the others were edging, edging their bets. It depends on whether you think he shows skill or not. Now, my previous employment in medical research gives me an insight into this to some extent. And I see no skill whatsoever in any of the cuts <clears throat> at all. Mm. Of course, I'm working on the fact, I mean, people will argue then, but what about Eddowes with the kidney? I will argue that that is slash and grab. He finds it by accident and just takes it. Other people will argue well, that's not possible. Well, that's, that's, that's down to people's opinion, isn't it, basically? We don't have the facts to, to let us make a decision. I don't think there's enough there to argue that he's got uh, any skill at all. At the very least, he may have some, at the very most, I mean, he may have some basic anatomical knowledge from cutting up animals, perhaps, but I'm not convinced of that either. I don't think there's any knowledge or skill is needed to do what the Whitechapel murderer did. 
I'll say that I don't like calling him Jack the Ripper at all, personally. I prefer to use the term the Whitechapel murderer. Um, I don't like to... I just don't feel comfortable using the term Jack the Ripper. So when, um, when you say he just... It's kind of a slash and grab. Do you think... He, well, there's two things. One, didn't he have some sort of idea of what he was going for? Or do you think it was just... You're, you're saying it's complete accident? I'm so, I would say that... He, the cuts are not uh, surgical cuts. He's not called the Ripper for nothing. The cuts, the external cuts, it's a stab, a, a rip, another stab, a rip. They're not continuous cuts, any of them. They're meandering cuts. Um, I think he obviously was um, driven by the female sexual organs that in the genital area and if you cut down there those things are quite obvious and you just take what you see basically um if he um was the same person who attacked emma smith um when emma smith looks like she had something inserted into her um the actual murderer could have done the same to to his other victims um in which to locate what he thought was you know privates a woman's parts basically i don't think he was actually searching for anything intentionally i see no evidence that he's searching for anything intentionally um we have comments from uh don't we have a comment in the lancet that um organs remove the one sweep of the knife but they actually weren't um so much was exaggerated and people get these ideas it's i mean a good one is the lusk kidney um how many times have we all heard that um there was two inches, um, that the renal artery is two, is three inches long, there was two inches and one bit and one bit, two inches left in the body and one inch left on the kidney. In fact, it's pretty clear from Dr. Oppenshaw and from Dr. Brown that there were no attachments on the kidney, it had been trimmed up. Yet this was made public by Major Smith of the city police and it's been repeated time after time after time as fact and it's just not. It's mm-hmm. pure invention. There, there were also, you know, they said at the same time that um, it was a woman's kidney of 45 years of age. You couldn't tell that. And it's interesting that the very next day, the doctor, Dr. Oppenshaw, and the hospital released a press release discrediting what the, what the press had said the day before they'd actually said. But that's not made public. That's not given out in any of the books or any of the sites. People just hear this, oh, it's a woman's kidney at the right age, um, blah, blah, blah. Well, that, fact, that kidney, well, that kidney came with a letter. Uh, how, what, yes. What's your opinion on all of the letters uh, involved with this? Uh, I wouldn't say they're all fake, because that would be... I never say anything's 100%, but I'd say 99.999 of them are fake. Um, there's always remote possibility that a letter somewhere was written by the by the killer but i'm not sure of it and if i had to put some money on it i'd say none at all personally okay but i but i hate going 100 percent with anything i hope you understand what i mean oh yeah for sure that's i always do this same thing speaking of letters or writings uh, on goulston street uh when uh uh um, I don't know if we're going to get too far. I don't want you to uh, kind of reveal okay. anything in your next book. But, no, uh, it's okay. What do you think? 
What, how about that? What, what's your uh, opinions on the Goulston Street discovery? Uh, this is another one of those where I think it's split 50-50, isn't it? Or perhaps 60-40 as to whether or not the writing is linked to the murders and linked to the April or not. Um, I go through spells where I've been very strongly, it's got no link at all. Now I'm slightly more that there may be a possible, possible link. Um, but it's not clear, and it's not clear right. what it meant. And we're not even sure the exact wording because different officers took it down differently. Um, we're not even sure the exact location where it was. It varies. I mean, we're, we're given a vague description where, where it was. And there's even some debate about the size of the fetters. Should that be interpreted as three quarters of an inch or should it be interpreted as three to four inches? Um, mm -hmm. So all these things that are unclear. My personal view at the moment is that they're probably not linked. But I wouldn't be surprised if they are, and I'm open to an argument that they are linked. Okay. The uh, It's interesting about that. <clears throat> so what's happened is, after, in Midas Square, after Catherine Eddowes was murdered, a piece of her, was it apron, was found, mm. uh, bloody apron was found on at Goulston Street, and right above that, or near that, was this writing. And uh, so that's what we're kind of talking about. The uh, And I think uh, there's some question is let's say the let's say the possibility that uh, the the offender was a a polish jew or something like mm -hmm. this this was in a jewish kind of background right and that the writing was uh, kind of hinted at that yes i mean some people would say that um, i mean i've heard it said that if it, if the killer wrote that then in fact why is he pointing the finger at his own community if he was a polish jew um, mm -hmm. my view is he's gloating perhaps if it was, mm -hmm. you can't tell. There's no way of knowing what was going through this person's mind if it was written by him. Far too often we try to assume that we know how a killer was thinking. We have no idea how a serial killer thinks. And what right. is, what's logical to them might not be logical to us at all. The uh, the, uh, the thing that, I, you know, you're right. I go in waves on uh, is it connected or not. At the moment, I'm a not because mm -hmm. if you just eviscerated someone, and you're running away so you don't get caught, I'm mm. not sure if I'd stop and write something on chalk and something. No, I don't think I, don't think I would. But again, we don't know. We're thinking as logical, logical, logical people. We're not thinking right. like the, the killer at all. But I, I'm with you at the moment. I'm still probably 60, 40 against it being linked. But I'm mm -hmm. open to any reasonable arguments that make a strong point. I just haven't seen any that are that strong. There's one is uh, 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 Tracy Eanson is uh, she's kind of uh, championing uh, uh, Levy uh, Jacob Levy as the offender and uh, mm. one of the witnesses was a supposed uh, first cousin uh, Levy yes and uh, so Joseph apparently Hines Levy um, yeah it's quite interesting I was talking to Tracy only an hour ago <laughs> oh look at that uh, far away with your question though and your your <laughs> comment. Well, what's interesting how Tracy, yeah. uh, what Tracy says that uh, his office uh, was near there. So her idea was that maybe he went to the office, dropped off the uh, organs, kept that uh, piece of uh, material that he held the organs with, and dropped it off, wrote that, and then went to I think a block, uh, half a block around was the uh, some relatives or something to that effect. Well, I can I can cl clarify all that for you quite quite well. Okay. The cousin was definitely a first 
other than that, that, that's been proven. Uh, Joseph Hyams Levy, he lived at number one Hutchinson Street, which was a uh, hundred or so yards down from um, Jacob Levy's butcher's shop in Middlesex Street. It was, on, it was on this same road, though it had a different address. He was a corner house. Um, Galston Street, Wentworth Buildings, where the apron was found, the writing was found, although not in the exact block, Jacob's brother, Isaac, was living in the block next door. Ah. Yes. Gotcha. Um, so there's lots of links there, and there's, you know, it, it, you could stretch it. I mean, I'm a great believer in the Anderson suspect. Whoever mm-hmm. that, that was, be that Kosminski or somebody else. You could the push it. That, theory. Yes, you could push it that, that Jacob Levy um, is and it's a suspect. It's pushing it Tracy far, but that's right. It. Well, one of the things that I think Tracy talks about is that when, especially with the Anderson suspect, when uh, the idea, I think Swanson and Anderson talked about going to the, um, the, the what is it, uh, that home that uh, the uh, the Jewish witness w- refused yes. to eyewitness, but I thought that Swanson said Kazminsky specifically. Kuzminski, he does say Kazminsky specifically. I was talking to Tracy about that er- earlier on because um, that's the stumbling block for Levy being an Anderson suspect. Of course, okay. one thing we have discovered, we discovered it a long time ago, is that Joseph Hyam Levy, the cousin, was um, friends with a Martin Kosminski, who was a furrier. Now, we know Martin Kosminski doesn't fit what is said about Kosminski, but he may have had brothers who did. And in Adam Wood's recent book on Swanson, he sort of discusses that and looks at that possibility. Not in great detail, but it's mentioned. Okay. So there's a possibility that they're all interconnected <laughs> in some weird way. I think so, we're not far out on whether it's Levy or a Kosminski. I think we're not far out. I think we're in the right ballpark sort of thing. Which, so, of course, Al, you're, you're going to have to get... Uh, <laughs> so, Al, you're going to have to get Adam Wood on the, the show. Well, yeah, Wednesday. <laughs> okay. <laughs> So, so funny, Steve. How coincidental, yeah. coincidental that you're talking to Tracy an hour ago, and we're going to be interviewing uh, Adam, Adam in two days. Yeah. <laughs> well, Adam's book is really good. I've read it all. Um, I gave him my critique of the relevant ch- ch- chapter. I agree with much of what he said. Um, yeah, I have no problem with a lot of what he said. Some of it I, I disagree with, obviously. But, um, yeah, it's well-reasoned and well-argued. Well, I think that's the cool, great thing about uh, so everyone can hear this is the the amazing to me it's the amazing amount of research and the scholarship that goes in, involved with all these details. I mean, it's uh, it's it's really to me uh, it's uh, exciting to work at well, this. Adam's got so much work gone into that. It's taken him four or five years. Um, he's got vast number of references in the book. Um, I will just add, he hasn't got as many references as the inside Buck Rose got. But. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Oh, there you go. Wow. His book's bigger than, than mine. His book's about 70 pages longer than my book. Ah, I gotcha. <laughs> but I'm a great fan of Adam's, basically, so um, I think yeah. he's a decent guy. 
I think he's a good researcher. Yep, and he, so, he helps us out with the Ripperologist uh, magazine, and uh, so we he can does. Get... He does. Yeah. <clears throat> so where do you think it's all going to go? Like, um, at, at the end of the day, are we ever going to really um, zone in and figure out who it was? Um, I think some of us already think we know who it was. Uh, <laughs> I'm not. Talk- I'm not talking here about the uh, the people who just. Come into the subject, write a book, and disappear. I'm talking about the serious researchers such as Mike, me, uh, Rob House, uh, Tracy. We're going to be around for a long time. A lot of us are, I'd say, 90% convinced that our suspect is the right suspect. Um, whether we have a proper answer, unless we find something completely incriminating, I doubt it. We're always going to be able to argue against whatever anyone else says, basically. Um, Everything is circumstantial. The thing for um, Anderson's suspect is we get two police officers mentioning the same person. Um, We then get McNaughton also mentioning the same individual as Swanson mentions. You get little child acknowledging that he's heard of Anderson's theory. So we know that that theory was circulating around quite early on. Um, whether it's accurate or not, we don't know. I think Swanson and Anderson believed 100% that they had the right man as their suspect eventually. But I don't think they came to that conclusion until around about 93 or 94. That's 1893 right. or 1894. Right. I don't think they were thoroughly convinced even when their suspect had been locked up it was only a year or so afterwards they convinced themselves. I think they were probably about 75% convinced when they had when the guy was locked up, but not right. fully convinced. Right. You know, but that matches that 93-94 because here is little child retired in 1893, and his first comment was, is, uh, I have not heard of a Dr. D. So you could yeah. see that uh, things were happening right around that time. Yes. Yes, I mean, if you look at uh, Anderson's room, uh, writing in 1889-1890 he's not certain by 91-92 he's hinting that he's got ideas who it is mm-hmm. and by 93-94 well by 95 94-95 McNaughton's actually putting names down the memoranda is um, one of the strangest documents we will ever see um, and we could do a whole program on, on that alone basically it's a very weird right. document yeah <laughs> Can I this this might I may be causing some trouble I don't know but um, when you uh, get books like uh, the big published books like uh, Patricia Conwell Cron- Cromwell mm-hmm. and stuff where they where they're in every major newspaper because mm-hmm. of their publisher you know saying um, you know the uh, Jack the Ripper solved and yes. all this stuff and the huge promo push like lots of money. Yes. And uh, they put the book out. It's number one. It does so well for a year or so, and sells th- thousands of books. And it's and and the reason I what I'm getting at is when this happens, I find myself going to places um, just in public life before the Corona thing, mm-hmm. and people would just say to me, "Oh, so they solved the case? So they they buy into it because they've seen it in the paper. It's in the New York Times, yes, it's wherever." And so like they the DNA. Yeah, right. So all of a sudden, it's solved, isn't it? Didn't they yes. solve it? And you get well, these questions because they not... know I write true crime. And I go, well, no. And so what do we do with that? Is that helping? No, it doesn't, it it doesn't help. Um, I mean, 
as I've pointed out, I am basically um, an Anderson suspect person, which equates to Kosminski, let's say. Um, I've had, for the last three or four years, and particularly the last year, loads of people saying, oh, it's been solved, isn't it? It's Kosminski. The shawl proves it. The DNA. It's nonsense, right. quite honestly. Complete nonsense. I know at least four or five well-known Ripper researchers who've handled that shawl. <laughs> so their DNA is there as well. Um <laughs> I could name them here, but I won't. <laughs> no. <laughs> but, no, I mean, well, I shame, mean, is that, I... shame is that people read this because it, it's in the press, uh, it goes in the press, it goes on television, and people take this as being factual. Um, I, in Inside Buck's Row, I take great deal of contention with the documentary I mentioned earlier on Lechmere, because basically it... Um, how do I put this nicely? Um it doesn't always give an accurate picture of what happened. For instance, right. it actually portrays Robert Paul walking up to Lechmere, and Lechmere is bending over the body, kneeling over the body of Mary Ann Nichols. That just didn't happen. It's not my view. That's what Robert Paul says himself. And yet, yeah. when you contest this with the people involved in the documentary, they say, oh, it doesn't matter. It's just a, it's just a presentation to give people an idea. But it's a visual medium, and if you're going to not give the truth, what is the point of making it? And the same yeah. happens with newspapers. In Britain, it's the Daily Mail, a lot of the time, publishes stories about Jack the Ripper. Um, and it's probably been sold with five different people in the last year, according to the Daily Mail. Um, it's as simple as that. They don't help the case. They make research. They don't actually affect us serious researchers, other than... If we're on Facebook, etc., some of us will spend hours rebutting some of these silly theories because we feel that we have to, because we feel the general public should have a general, a genuine view of what's going on, not the hype produced by big publishers or newspapers or television. Right. Yeah. Yeah, because yeah, I just noticed, I don't know what's going on in the UK, but in, in Canada, where I am now, and the US, we're getting inundated with all these crime shows, you know, like all these production companies are making them because of the big love for it mm -hmm. and and you see this stuff all these shows that you know the zodiacs my grandfather the zodiacs yeah. my uncle and you mm -hmm. get tons of them because they just want to get anything true crime on doesn't, yeah. doesn't matter if they don't have oh. and so i'm getting that with jack the ripper too not as much as zodiac lately but i see a lot of these shows and they're just really not very good no, well, the number of people who have been on in the last 18 months on Facebook and some of the other sites talking about H.H. H. Holmes. And that, yes. is the classic, <laughs> that, that is the classic show, isn't it? Um, his great-great-grandson yes. believes it's him, and there's no evidence at all in... How many programs was it? Four or five? There's no evidence at all in any episode. None at all other than, I think my grandfather was the killer. And that's it. Yeah. I know, yeah. and I've had him on the show, and I've talked to him, and he, he really, really believes this. Like yes, he's not, <laughs> I know he believes it, but he's got nothing to back it up with. It's just a belief. Yeah. Um, right. That's the problem. This is the problem between... There are people in Britain who've got connections to possible um, suspects, and again, they believe that their great ancestor may have been the Ripper. I personally don't understand why you want to actually do that, but some yeah. people do. Right. Well, there's a there's a real um, in public right now. I mean, with with whole social media aspect to life, there's a real need to be um, popular, I guess, yes. or famous, and you yes. know, they're they're licking toilets to get on. Yes. 
<laughs> you know, with the virus going around. They, they'll do whatever they have to to get so many likes. And it's I, so it's kind of like that. And I kind of feel sorry for some of them. But I, I just don't know um, how um, real researchers like both of you guys and other people that do not have millions of dollars to throw at TV and commercials mm -hmm. and newspapers. I don't know um, how that's going to get through to the general public. That's all. It's probably not. I mean, Mike's actually luckier in that he's publishing proper books. He's got a he's got a publisher who publishes them for him. That helps to a degree with um, publicity. I'm at the other end of the scale. I'm self-published. Um, mm. I'm not looking for mass um, sales to the general public. I'm looking purely to. I do it a because I want to do it because I enjoy it. And B to try and educate people who are seriously into it, basically. So it doesn't really affect me as such. You know, one of the yeah, things I was sure. thinking, Al, too, is that uh, my old uh, my, my background is there's peer review with the, the physical sciences and paleontology, mm. and so what I am trying to push for is this peer review with Paul Bag doing reviews and the Ripperologist. Uh, yes. And you actually, Al, you're interviewing people like Steve and Adam and also Paul the, to get the word out to show. But I also think uh, uh, the us researchers, we're always dialoguing with each other, ripping mm. each other apart sometimes. And then, uh, but I think it's all healthy. It's and then, in, in a strange way, it's kind of nice to have the the interest out there that keeps us going. So, uh, but uh, you're right. It's like. Uh, it, it can get really nasty, or, or just oh, really uh, fake news. <laughs> yes. All I will say now is that I mean I'm I'm admin on quite a few um, Ripper Facebook sites, and uh, the growth in numbers wanting to join the groups in the last three or four weeks is quite astronomical. Hmm. So obviously people yeah. with time on their hands looking to find something to actually do, and that's really good. It means we're getting it means we're getting the message out there, but unfortunately we're still getting people coming on talking absolute nonsense. <laughs> and right. some people right. get very offended when you tell them what they're talking about. You t it's nonsense. You tell them in the nicest possible way, and you don't use the word nonsense. You just try and tell them they're mistaken. That's not true. And all they come out with is my opinions as valid as yours. Yes. Yes. But, Steve, like but it's but that's one of the comments though I wanted to make about you, Steve, is that you're very patient with these people. That uh, mm -hmm. not everybody's very patient. Sometimes I'm not that patient. So that I'm no. that's a that's that's a quality. No, I mean I'm I'm sure we both know um, researchers um, and authors who are on Facebook who are not patient at all with people. We're not going. I, I shan't name anyone, but I can think of several. Um, <laughs> In the in based in the UK, who are not patient with people, and I understand why they're not patient with people. Um, they've had enough of dealing with people who can't be bothered to actually go and do a little bit of research, even. But yeah. you've got to understand that a lot of people coming onto sites like Facebook won't have done any research. They're not going to have done research. It's a subject that interests them, and I believe we got a, a role to get them more involved to try and get them into the subject seriously. And if we can get two out of every thousand you join actually getting into it and doing proper research themselves i think we've been a success well so now how do we get your book now so for the listeners that want to pick up uh stephen uh blomer's book what what do they do well um it's only available as an ebook at present it's not on kindle or anything because they take too big a share of 
the amount. Um, you get it directly from me. Now, you can go on to Facebook and look for a page just called Inside Bucks Row. That gives you all the details of how to buy. The thing has got all the reviews up there and comments. Uh, the book is regularly updated. There hasn't been one since February, but when on volume, we're actually at second edition now, and it's second edition revision four, I think, at present. Um, oh, wow. It's been updated quite a few times since it was released in July last year, and it's substantially larger than when it was first released. There's a whole new chapter now on the lost public houses around Bucks Row. Um, but if you don't want to go onto the page, the Facebook page, uh, you can pay for it by PayPal, and the address is www.paypal.me backwards slash Bucks Row, all round word, lowercase. Um, you get options of either getting a smaller resolution file, which um, basically is all everyone needs. If you want the larger resolution file, you're going to be looking at it on a 25-inch screen sort of thing, or a 30-inch screen. At the moment, because of the virus, because I know people are at home and people are short of money, I've reduced the price to £4.99. Uh, you get constant updates for life. You pay for it once, and any updates that are done, you get emailed a copy of the book. Um, basically, if you make a PayPal payment, you normally get the book within 25 min minutes of me receiving notification of the payment. Fantastic. Now, we're going to have that on our website as well, so listeners can just do one click or just find it that way. I say, if they want to go and have a look at the actual page, there's a web page, there's a, buck, there's a Facebook page dedicated to the book, and it's just inside Bucks Row. It's an open page. Anyone can go and look at it. Anyone can make any comments on there that they like. It's got all the details about how to buy the thing, about the updates. Um, it's got reviews on there. Um, it's quite handy. Great. Fantastic. Again, our guest has been uh, Stephen Blomer, and the book is Inside Bucks Row, Marianne Nichols, and Anatomy of Murder. Thank you for being on the show. Thank you. To find out more about our show, guests, or to listen to past shows from our archive, please go to www.houseofmysteryradio.com. Show's over for now. Was it as good for you as it was for me? Well, good night. This has been a production of Something Weird Media. I'll be back. 